Welcome to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. We are so thankful that you are listening in. The Neighborhood Church is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We hope that through these podcasts you are encouraged, that you're inspired, and that you're provided with practical wisdom on how to find and follow Jesus. We hope that you enjoy today's podcast. Good evening. Hey, good to see everyone. How are you doing? I'm going to take this off for a second, and uh, we're going to get into this. Uh, it's good to have everyone here. Uh, it's been, uh, my name is Pastor Jordan, as many of you know me, and uh, I know many of you, and for those I don't know, I'm Pastor Jordan. Uh, good to meet you, and it's good to be back here together. Uh, I think this is the first time since I've been back where we've had this amount of people in the room, and so I'm excited and looking forward to opening the scriptures with us tonight as we continue in our series through the book of Acts, which we've titled Unfinished. And so tonight we're going to talk about one of these stories where for P- the Apostle Peter, this was an eye opener if there ever was one for somebody. Last week, Pastor Louis did a great job talking about Saul and his conversion and what that all meant and what that included. Not simply that he came to faith in Jesus, which is amazing and obviously needs to happen, but also that he quit persecuting Christians as well. And something shifted in Saul's understanding that led him to live life differently. And so tonight I want us to look at another conversion, if you will, where something shifts in the life of Peter the Apostle. And so let's get into this tonight. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever have a bias towards something? Anyone? Anyone here live with bias or opinions? Maybe you have particulars about certain things. I think for the most part, all of us do. There are certain things that you favor or that you like, and there are other things that you dislike and perhaps you want nothing to do with. Um, We all live with these things. We're human. It wasn't a trick question that I was asking. It's natural that we have preferences and convictions of sorts, but sometimes these preferences and these convictions can take us to a place where perhaps we don't want to go. And so let me start with something fun as we talk about rivalries. See, rivalries can be fun sometimes. Think about sports, okay? There's the classic rivalry in hockey of the Maple Leafs and the Canadians, right? Anyone lean anywhere on that side? Leaf fans, anyone, right? Canadian fans, I know one over here for sure, so... Right? There, there's football rivalries. We, we, some people cheer for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Other people cheer for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, right? <laughs> I'm sure our towns get into rivalries sometimes. You know, I can imagine a good old-fashioned Warman versus Martinsville, like, you know, football game can get pretty interesting from time to time. And we have rivalries, and generally, I think these things can be fun. Sure, the odd time, you know, think NHL playoffs, there could be bloodshed in the streets, maybe just a little after a game, but nothing too crazy. Generally, we can control these rivalries, and we can still love our bomber cheering friends, right? Right? Amen? For those of you watching online, there was a huge amen there. The sound man had to, like, put the volume down, okay? But sometimes these rivalries and these divisions go deeper than any of us ever want them to. And they affect our lifestyle. And they affect how we treat people. And they affect how we see people. Think about times of war. 
I know I got a little dark there, but country versus country. And how that can take us to places that most of us would never, ever, ever hope to want to go or desire to go. And it can get brutal and it can get barbaric at times. And, 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 and there's loss. And you see the ugliness of the human heart is most revealed, I think, when we live with an attitude of superiority. Or when we look down on others. Or when we live with this attitude that we're somehow way up here and... Those people are way down here in comparison. Nothing brings out the problem of the human heart more sometimes than our allegiances. And that can often turn our living into an us versus them mentality that causes all sorts of issues for everyone. We can write each other off where we can make no real effort to really understand or really actually try to hear one another. And I know that we certainly struggle with this in our times, and they most certainly wrestled with them as well in biblical times. And we're going to look at a story tonight in the book of Acts that's going to talk about this. And so that brings us to our portion today. In Acts chapter 10, Jesus is about to begin a revolutionary thought in the church that literally says, enough of this. Enough of this. This is not who God is. And this kind of thinking is not proper for the people of God. And so let's look at the scriptures tonight as we look for guidance. Acts chapter 11, let's start there and we're going to go backwards, back into verse 10. Acts chapter 11, verse 2 and 3 reads like this. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea, Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? You, went, you, you actually went into the house of uncircumcised people and you actually shared a meal with them? You know, when I think about just the way that they're approaching Peter here in, in chapter 11, after what had gone down in chapter 10, it reminds me of like when I was younger and in grade school, and we'd develop cliques, right? And we'd have the crowds that we hung out with. Though he's a leader in the army, somehow he was kind of seen as a godly man. He was a God-fearer, the scriptures tell us, which, which means that he, he seemed to believe, sort of, in the Jewish faith, or at least had faith in the one God that the Jews were always talking about. And Cornelius was known to pray all the time. He gave alms. He sacrificed to God. He was known among Jews as a rare Roman soldier who sought God. And he had a heart open to the gospel. And so one time he found himself praying, and, and, and this, was a, this was a habit for him, an angel showed up to him and spoke to him. Now, I'm not going to get into how weird that must have been, okay? But the angel shows up and gives him some instructions that the Lord wants him to send some men to go over to Joppa, this town 30 miles away, and on the seacoast, you're going to find a guy inside of the house of Simon the Tanner, and his name's Peter. And I want you to find him. And I want you to listen to him, because he has some things to say to you. And so Cornelius obeys. And he sends over two servants and a guard on this journey to find Peter over in the household of Simon the Tanner. But at the same time as that is happening, God is also working on Peter and on his heart. 
And so there's like some third level communication going on here. Not only is God speaking to this gentleman named Cornelius, but he's also speaking to Peter at the same time. And Peter's praying. And when I say Peter is praying, this isn't some, you know, just quick prayer time, you know, bring your request to God and just kind of share what you need that, that Peter's given to God in this moment. But Peter's in deep prayer and he's allowing God to form him. He's allowing God to speak to him. You see, prayer is never simply just about us. But in prayer, God actually changes the nature of the one who prays. And God wants to speak to us in prayer and God reveals more of himself in, to us in prayer. And so, God, I, I, I don't want us to, sorry, I don't want us to glance past this tonight. God meets him in this place of prayer and is about to completely blow his world apart here with some shocking revelation as he prays. And so he's in the house of Simon the Tanner and he's praying up on the roof. And when I say he's praying up on the roof, it's not like our houses, right, where, you know, our, most of our roofs are slanted and he's holding on for dear life. Oh, God, you know, don't let me fall down. Right? He's not praying on a roof like that, but it's a flat top. That's how it was in these days. Oftentimes it was that way for privacy. And so Peter's up there praying, trying to get away from everything and probably everyone. How many of you can relate? And while he's praying, he gets hungry and he gets this vision, which is bizarre. And there's this bed, big bed sheet coming down from heaven. Okay, I'm telling you, this is getting interesting here. And on this spread sheet are all sorts of animals that the Old Testament identifies as unclean. And in the Old Testament, if you ate these types of animals, then you'd be defiled. It'd be an abomination to do this. You see, they had very strict kosher laws about what they could or couldn't eat. And so this was so important to them. And so this sheet is coming down with all these animals that Peter would have saw literally as disgusting. He would have saw it as gross. But then he hears a voice, which is the voice of God. And God says, I want you to eat some of those animals. And Peter immediately is like, no way. My lips have never touched anything unclean like these animals. And I'm not going to start doing this now. And then God says to Peter, by the way, if I say something is clean, you are not allowed to say it is unclean. Aiming to put Peter in his place. Now, Peter understandably is kind of confused by this and the thought of eating those animals would have been tough on him. But on top of that, he believes in the old covenant, and, and, and these covenants go into pretty clear and precise details about what someone can or cannot eat. If you really are into that stuff, Leviticus 18.19 is the book for you, okay? Check it out. But you can imagine that this had to create some theological confusion for Peter here. This is going against everything that he's come to, to believe religiously. God's telling me that all animals are clean and I can eat any of them. And Jesus actually said the same thing in the Gospels. Except Jesus said it like this. Jesus said that it's not what goes into a person's mouth that makes them unclean, but rather it's what comes out of their mouth. For this reveals a person's heart. And so this creates some confusion. Why is God doing this? Well, God's trying to teach Peter something here. That this distinction between clean and unclean animals is invalid. And he declares everything to be clean. Eat what you want. Some of us are like, amen. And he's doing that to try to get Peter to see a greater distinction. 
between clean and unclean people, that that is also invalid because God has declared all of them clean because of the cross. And so for Jews, those two things for them were wrapped up together. One of the clearest evidences that you had that Gentiles were unclean was that they ate gross and disgusting food that the law spoke against. But God is saying that the food they eat is clean and they are clean. And he's giving them a, a reframing of all this right now. And he's trying to free Peter from his prejudiced mindset and take the gospel to the Gentile people. Something the Jewish people wouldn't dare to tread on their own. But that's never an easy task. You see, trying to free someone from a prejudice or, or, or racist mindset is never easy. The text said that Peter had to get this vision, this same vision three times to actually understand it. I don't know what it's with Peter, but three times seems to be a thing for him, right? But he's told three times this vision and he starts to get it. And so then after he starts to get it, the guys that Cornelius sent over to Peter, they show up at the gate and Peter comes down and says, I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you coming to me? And they say, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, has sent us to you. He was instructed by an angel for us to come to, your, to come to this house and hear what you have to say. And this would present another barrier in the story because to invite unclean people, Gentile people, into your house would therefore make your household unclean. They had such strict rules in this time. Or to go into a house of an unclean person would make you unclean. And if you were around these people, then you'd have to go through a week-long ceremonial washing to be clean again so that you can go back into the temple, hang out with your family, etc., etc., etc. And so the fact that Peter is willing to go to Cornelius and enter his home shows that this third vision is actually getting through to him because he's acting in some countercultural ways here now. And I wonder what Simon the Tanner's thinking here, okay? Any of you have that friend who, you know, you, you could show up at your house and they're sitting on your steps, like, you know, playing on their phone or something, right? And you're like, did I invite you here? No, okay, come in anyways, right? And, and any of you have that kind of person in your life who kind of just shows up anywhere? Simon the Tanner's here, and he hasn't had this vision. Peter has. And Peter's just inviting Gentile people into the house to stay the night, Right? And the funny thing is, is this wasn't even Peter's house. This was the house of Simon the Tanner. And Peter's just, you know, come in. You know, and, and Simon likely has strong reservations about what's happening here. But he likely goes along with it out of respect for Peter the Apostle, but also probably a bit freaked out about what's happening. And so eventually they make their way to Cornelius' house, and he meets him at the gate, and he lets him in. In Acts chapter 10, verse 25 to 29, let's pick it up here. Here's what we read. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him, stand, made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, and this is a key verse. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection 
may I ask why you sent for me? And so Peter talks about the barriers that were in place that kept Jewish people from visiting with Gentile people. And they had barriers in these days that, that, that prevented them from associating with one another. And the attitude and the atmosphere in this conversation wasn't necessarily a celebratory one about a Jewish person coming to a Gentile because there were some huge barriers here. Let's look at a few of them. Number one, there was a social barrier. There was a social barrier in this story. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. Okay? And the Roman nation ruled over Israel at this point in the story. And so when the Jewish people saw a Roman soldier, they were seeing their oppressors. And so there was no love loss here. Secondly, there was an economic barrier in this story. Cornelius lived in Caesarea. Caesarea was this beautiful kind of beach city resort. They built all sorts of nice buildings in. It was just a beautiful place to live. And he, he was very high class, if I could say it like that. Peter, on the other hand, was unemployed for the most part, following Jesus around for the past three to five years. He had no money, had no education, and half his time he seemed to be living with someone else. And apparently inviting people to spend the night at their houses anyways. And, and, and finally, there was a racial barrier. And this is the most intense of them here. Remember that Peter viewed certain foods and animals as unclean. Well, just as they viewed certain foods and animals as unclean, well, they also viewed certain people as unclean. And there were certain people that they didn't spend time with. There were people that they didn't talk to. They called them Gentiles and basically anyone who wasn't Jewish as well. And if you were a Jewish person and you hung out with the Gentile and you spent time with the Gentile, if you so much as touched the Gentile, they would consider you unclean as well. And you were ostracized and you were cast out of society. And you probably couldn't be around your family and friends for a while. And you couldn't worship in the temple. None of that. You'd be out. Until you went through this process of cleaning and became clean to enter these places again and become purified. And so there's some barriers here in this story. And it took Peter five years and three visions to get this, to understand the all-inclusive nature of the kingdom. He's starting to get that the cross has obliterated this us-versus-them kind of thinking. Any inside or who's in and who's out distinction, those are gone because of the cross. And God's kingdom is open to everyone. Amen? God's kingdom is open to all. And he's starting to see that there's a new creation. He's starting to see that the paradigm has shifted. There's a whole new way of thinking happening here. And in Acts 10, verse 34 and 35, we read this. We read, then Peter began to speak. And he said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And Peter starts to preach to them, and he starts to tell them about Jesus, and tells them about Jesus' death, tells them about the resurrection, tells them about the gospel. He declares the gospel to them. He gets a few lines in, and then what happens next in the story? Well, the Holy Spirit's poured out on them. The Holy Spirit is poured out on these Gentiles, these former people who were out, who, who, who this wasn't for in the Jewish people's minds. And they're now speaking in tongues, and it's obvious that they were filled with the Holy Spirit here. And Peter takes it up again, verse 47. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way 
of their being baptized with water. Up until this point, that wasn't, that wasn't the thing you would ever do. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people? And so they were baptized. And baptism is really, church, a, a first step. It's what we do upon conversion. And I'm, I'm going to throw a quick plug in here. For the month of April, here at the Neighborhood Church, that is baptism month, okay? And it's going to be starting on Easter. And if baptism is something you, you, you know that you're supposed to walk through, you've thought about, you're interested in, please talk to one of us, because we'd love to see you get baptized as well. But these Gentiles were baptized. This was brand new stuff. And Peter recognizes that God shows no favoritism. But do we ever, as people, show favoritism? Do we ever pick and choose based on our preferences? You see, whether we like it or not, whether I like to admit it or not, we often have our favorites, don't we? Those who make us comfortable, those who are like us, we fall into favoritism, I think sometimes easy, but with God, we're all on the same playing field. We're all equal. And his grace is available, and it's amazing to each one of us, but sometimes even this we can turn into a competition. Sometimes this we can turn into who's in and who's out. Sometimes we can even get upset with God when we realize that he, ex he accepts those people that we shun, or when we realize that his grace that's available to me is also available to my enemies, or those I don't like, or those people I don't approve of. You see, Jesus told a story about this in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew, and it was called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. How many of you are familiar with that story? Anyone? I see some hands. And I don't want to spend all day on it, though I'd love to, but it's a story about a man who had people come and work in his vineyard. And some people started at 6 a.m., and they worked all day, long, hot, sweat, right? Long hours, and they were tired and ready for some rest. And some people started, you know, later in the morning. Some started around noon. Some started in the afternoon. And then some people actually started with only one hour left in the shift. There was an hour left to go. And the, and, and the owner of the vineyard went and found people, hey, come work in my field, and I'll pay you. And they came. And they worked. Fair enough. Maybe the job was crucial. Maybe it needed to get done. Maybe it had to be done quick. But where it gets scandalous, where this story, I think, for lots of us gets scandalous, and where it makes zero economical sense, is that this owner of the vineyard pays every single person who worked that day the same wage. Whether you work 12 hours, 9 hours, 6 hours, 2 hours, 1 hour, you got paid the exact same thing. And you can imagine that some of those who were working that day had some reservations about this, right? <laughs> In Matthew chapter 20, verse 13 to 16, it says, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you. They thought he was being unfair. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with what 
I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Let me ask you an honest question here. How many of you who are familiar with this story have ever read this story before and found it difficult? Anyone? And you struggle with it because you're sitting there thinking, duh, some people work 12 hours, some people work one hour. Shouldn't the 12-hour people get paid more? Anyone? Anyone ever thought that before? I remember at my last church when I was going through uh, preaching about this uh, a few years ago, I remember asking that question, and people were outraged. They said it makes no sense economically. You know, how, how unfair would that feel to be working 12 hours, sweat, long days, someone comes in at the very last minute and gets paid the exact same thing you get, and you're made equal? Doesn't make sense. You make those one-hour workers equal to us? You know, they didn't sweat. They were probably watching TV all morning, probably caught Sports Center. We didn't, right? Probably, you know, had a good meal, doing things around the house. It didn't seem quite fair on the surface. And if we find ourselves resisting this parable from Jesus, I think it's for one reason and one reason only. <laughs> I think it's because when we read this parable, we immediately identify ourselves as a 12-hour worker. I don't know many people who read this story and immediately go, yeah, I'm that person who came in just for an hour, laid around all day. That's what I do. In the culture we live in, I think it's easy for us to identify ourselves as a 12-hour worker. You know, when we hear a story like this, I think it's, it, it's natural for us to try to find our spot in it. Who am I in this story? And inevitably, I think we can come to the conclusion that, well, I'm certainly one of those people who work 12 hours. I'm not lazy. I don't sit around. I earn my wage. And that's why you might resonate with their offense. And that's why you probably think to yourself, yeah, you know, they make a good point to be upset. They worked hard that day. And it's easy to see why we might assume that we're 12-hour workers, because our society teaches us work hard, put your time in, earn your money, all good things, okay? But nobody enters this text, I don't think, and wants to take on the role of that person who sat around for 11 hours and couldn't find work, right? And almost in a moment of pity, at the 11th hour, we're basically brought in to work for the final hour of the day. You see, our culture teaches us that that is less desirable. Do what you can. Earn what you get. And this is fine in the culture of the world. And it makes perfect sense to us. But the culture of the kingdom of heaven reverses the script. Okay? And it's not what the original audience was expecting to hear. And in the book of Matthew, this was written to a Jewish audience, we must keep in mind. And this story would have implications for them going forward. And one way of thinking about this parable, not all the ways, but one way which many scholars interpret this parable is in terms of Jews and Gentiles. Us who are Gentiles in the room, I think many of us can, can relate to that, right? Or can identify that way. Us who are Gentiles in the room are late to the party, but yet we still receive the same grace. 
You see, the Jews, in a sense, can be seen as the all-day workers who from the beginning have borne the burden and the blessing because it's both to be the chosen people of God. And through it all, the Jewish people bore the work of God while we Gentiles were out worshiping snakes and trees and clouds and whatever, right? That's kind of what was happening in these days. But in the last moment, God says, you want in on this? And we go, yeah, sure, why not? Then go work in my vineyard, okay? And all of a sudden, we are made equals with everyone who has been there from the very beginning. That's you if you identify as a Gentile today. And that's just one way of interpreting this parable, and I think it's applicable today. But the point is this, is that it's foolish to assume that we are all-day workers. It's foolish to approach this parable acting as though we're a 12-hour worker when we're probably not that at all. I don't know about you, but God doesn't owe me anything. I haven't earned anything. I haven't done anything in which I could, you know, ransom some of his love from him. But even if we were an all-day worker, remember the point of the parable. If we get upset with others being made equal to us by the grace of God, the only one who's going to suffer from that anger is us. And so perhaps this story teaches us something about our tendency to compare ourselves with each other. And before Jesus, friends, we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing there to earn his love, to earn his grace, to earn his acceptance. There's nothing that sets me apart from you or you from me in front of him. But before him, church, we are truly all one-hour workers. And it's by his grace that we're there. And God has been gracious to us. Amen? And this keeps us from showing favoritism. This keeps us humble. It helps us recognize and see ourselves properly and not elevate ourselves over others and not feel superior over other people. We have been shown grace because he is good. And like one-hour workers, we're invited into this party. And what a privilege it is to be a part of this kingdom. And so God shows no favorites, but perhaps we do. You see, I've already talked about some barriers in the story that took place in Acts chapter 10. But do we ever set up our own barriers that cause us to divide from one another? What keeps you from associating with people who are much different than you are? You see, maybe we set up barriers up against certain people in our lives, sometimes unconsciously. We don't even realize that we're doing it. But perhaps we too need Jesus to come in and break down some barriers, not just so we can live in harmony, although that's great, but so that Jesus may be glorified and that his message may be shared with all people. Amen? Is it easy for you to open your life to those who are radically different than you? Do you take the time to get to know those who are different than you? Theologian George Ladd said this. He said, the gospel must not only offer a personal salvation in the future life to those who believe, it must also transform all of the relationships of life here and now, and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in the world. You see, the gospel isn't simply just a transaction for eternity only, but the gospel is so much more. You see, God wants to transform our relationships and how we accept each other because he has accepted us. 
And I think it's our tendency sometimes to want to surround ourselves with ideas and interests and people who think like us. And then we immediately dismiss those who don't think like us. There's a tendency to want to do that. And I think it's true in our society that we're increasingly distanced from people with whom we disagree with. With people who are different than us in many ways. Whether that's values or ethnicity or culture, etc. And yet, this was not Jesus' approach and this would not be the approach of his kingdom. And the message is getting to Peter loud and clear in Acts chapter 10. That we're not going to put up with this anymore. You see, think about Jesus calling his disciples. Think about the 12 disciples that he chose. I like how Pastor Rich Volotis says it. He says, Jesus put people together who would most certainly not follow each other on Twitter or Instagram. Okay? He put people together who were different from one another, who had different ideas, different perspectives. Think about how conflicting it would have been for Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, to be on the same team here. Okay? Matthew worked for the government of the time. And Simon hated the government of the time. Matthew collected money for the Romans, and Simon sought to rebel against them in any way that he could, and somehow they were still able to remain connected through Jesus. But it likely cost them something. And in this case, Matthew likely had to quit ripping people off. (laughs) And Simon the Zealot had to embrace a different view of revolution. You see, reconciliation always costs us something, doesn't it? It costs us. And no more clear is that cost than when God calls Peter and Cornelius to one another. Men of different class, distinction, race, and both of them lived in a time of strong prejudice. But God's kingdom was going to be a kingdom of reconciliation. One of unity, one of love, God's acceptance of us. Not things that divide, not things that separate, not things that alienate us from each other. Amen? And the paradigm shift that started in Acts chapter 2, where all the nations are together and they hear each other speak in their own languages, is now finally being realized by Peter five years later in chapter 10. (laughs) And God is telling him, the Gentiles, those people you call unclean, I love them. And they are in on this too. They are in. Do not call unclean what God has made clean. And we see prejudices die in the name of Jesus. Exclusion is no longer fit for the kingdom. In fact, ethnicity, national lines are erased in this kingdom. Our first priority is to be a citizen of this kingdom. Because this isn't a kingdom for some people. This isn't a kingdom for certain people. But this is a kingdom that accepts all people. And in my studies this past week, I found this illustrated beautifully in the words of Rabbi Pinchas. And now Rabbi Pinchas was a, a rabbi from the 18th century. He was a teacher. And one of his students, Rabbi Pinchas once asked his students the question, how they could tell when the night had ended and the day had begun. And one student suggested, well, could it be when you can see an animal in the distance and you can tell whether it's a sheep or a dog? No, answered the rabbi. Another asked, is it when you can look at a tree in the distance and tell whether it's a fig tree or a date palm? No, answered the rabbi. Then when is it 
the students demanded. When can you tell that night has ended and day has come? And Rabbi Pinchas said to them, it is the moment when you can look into the face of any person and recognize them as your brother or sister. Until we are able to do that, it is still night. Moving from the night into day is conversion, friends. It's a moment of growth. You see, in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus was in the night of his deep hatred of Christians. But he had a conversion in chapter 9, and he moved into the day. Not only did he become a Christian, but all of a sudden he began to advocate for them. And in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter was still stuck in the darkness of a prejudice towards Gentiles. But then he had a conversion and he came into the light. He came into the day where he recognized in the face of the other, a Gentile, his sister and his brother. Paul and Peter came to see their enemies in a new light. And they realized that they weren't enemies at all, but that God has accepted us all. Amen. And we need the Holy Spirit's help to live in such a way that we can model that kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. And so what are things we learn in Acts chapter 10? Really quickly. We learn that the gospel redefines our identity. God won't submit to our biases, our opinions, or our preferences. We learn that God has accepted each of us and that God shows no favoritism. Even though sometimes we want to influence them, we want to nudge them towards certain type of people and keep them away, God shows no favoritism. And finally, we learn that in Christ we're all equal. We are one-hour workers. We have been shown much grace, and we need to recognize that the same love God has for me and you, he has for everyone in this world. And that can change the way we live. You see, it was the place of prayer that God seemed to meet Peter and Cornelius in this story. And perhaps he wants to meet us there too. As we bring ourselves and our hearts before him, and truthfully, I can't fully always see everything that's in my heart. I need God to show me things in my heart that maybe I don't even know are there. And God can. And he will reveal things to me. And so here's our take home today. Here's a prayer that I pray a lot throughout the Lenten season. I've been doing this now for many years, and it's been a prayer of mine this year as well. And it's found in the book of Psalm 139 and verses 23 and 24. In fact, the whole book is good to pray. But I find it helpful to pray these words, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in your way everlasting. May we pray this prayer tonight. May we ask God, find ourselves in that spot where we're constantly asking him to reveal things to us that, not so that we could feel ashamed, not so that we could feel bad about ourselves, but so that we could grow closer to him and so that we could become more like him. Amen? Do we still have barriers set up in our lives? Who do we purposely go out of our way to avoid? Who are those who just annoy you? They think so differently than you, but perhaps can really be that challenging friendship you might need right now. God, search our hearts is my prayer tonight, that we may see them as Peter was able to see a longtime enemy, how he was able to see Cornelius. And I'm not accusing anyone of anything here. That's not what this is about at all. <laughs> 
but it's good for us to bring ourselves before God and ask him to show us, reveal to us any way in which we've missed it, any way in which we've perhaps elevated ourselves above others, anything that could hurt our ability to live out the great commandment to love him and love others. And so I know a talk like this can be heavy, but God has accepted us all, church, right? And if he's accepted me, if he's accepted you, how dare we not accept another person? A final word from my studies before we pray. I read this this past week. Jesus doesn't need a bunch of gatekeepers committed to keeping the wrong people out of the kingdom. We're all the wrong people after all. But Jesus needs a family of sinners, saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors, and shouting, Welcome! There is bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. Amen? So in just silence for a minute here, just as like a little Selah moment, a little ponder. Let's just take a few seconds here and pray the words up on our screen in our own way. In a few moments, I'm going to pray for us. But take a moment. God, thank you that you can search our hearts, Lord. That you can reveal things to us that we might never see. Lord, would you reveal them to us, not so that we could feel beat down, God, but so that we could receive your grace afresh again and we could pass it on to people around us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for accepting us. Thank you that you show no favoritism, Lord. God, break down any barrier that we may put up, Lord, and help us to live out this great commandment to love you and to love everyone around us. On our own, Lord God, we fail miserably at this, but Lord, we ask for your help tonight. Help us to be the kind of people, God, who can do that. In your power and strength, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We are so thankful that you've listened in to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you. Go to the podcast description and follow the link to get in touch with us. Everything we do would not be possible without your generosity. If you would like to give, check out that same link in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.